How do you do? Mr. Mike Ketty feels that it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to, well, we warned you. James. I don't, oh, that, oh no, it's, no. Hey, Our, hey, James. Take care. Hey. Um, I hate my last, ep- last episode, I, I okay. promised you that I was going to do a, uh, a, a continue our, our rap theme song. Are you ready for it? <laughs> I've been waiting for it. Can you, can one of you guys give me a, a, a beatbox, but low, like don't overshadow me because I'm the star, but beatbox, please. It's the Monster Rally, the Monster Rally Podcast, Monster Rally, the Monster Rally Rap, it's the Monster Rally, the Monster Rally Podcast, Monster Rally, it's the Monster Rally Rap, we got James and Mike and Gary too, gonna talk about things that scare you, it's the Monster Rally, the Monster Rally Podcast, Monster Rally, the Monster Rally Rap. I hate this. (laughs) Hey everybody, welcome to the Monster Rally Podcast, you've made it this far. Might as well that, we, we've lost half of our subscribers. Listen, I, if you have made it this far, I'm sorry, and I love you. I'm sorry, I love you. Today we're talking about 1931's Frankenstein. Frankenstein, Frankenstein guys. Based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Wicka, 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 Frankenstein! It's Frankenstein. The Frankenstein Podcast. Frankenstein. The Frankenstein Podcast. And, um... Let's just jump right into what we're all thinking. Much like the legend of Zelda, the main character is not the name of the movie, guys. The monster's not named Frankenstein. That is uh, correct. Yeah, it is unlike the legend of Bagger Vance, where the main character is uh, in the title. Yeah, I assume I haven't watched it. There's a huge misconception about Frankenstein, but we just sort of go with it. I was on my way home today, and... Um, I didn't really know where I was going to put this into the our discussion today, but I really wanted to get it in there because I think it's a funny joke. It's funnier than I think. It's funny. I don't think you guys are going to think it's funny. No. Do you ever? Do you have you ever seen those bumper stickers on? It's de- it's always an SUV um, that says or, or a Prius, which I have driven a Prius and now an SUV that says <laughs> "Who rescued who?" Oh, <laughs> yes, I've seen that a time or two. James, let me explain it to you. It's it's a rescue dog thing. It's like I oh, rescued a dog, but who rescued who? Sense. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I assume Henry Frankenstein had that on his car about the monster, right? Like, uh, well, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yes. It's, um, this is a movie about a mediocre white man of means who takes no responsibility for his actions. Wow, mediocre with that comb over, he's only mediocre. <laughs> so what? A, what? A, again, <laughs> 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 Listen. Good God. All right, listen, guys. 
I'm gonna. I got a lot. I got a lot of things to say. <laughs> Oh, we all have we all have plenty of things to say. I think that's fair enough to say. And I'm a little disturbed because we 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 here at the Monster Rally podcast we really strive on um, perfection, as you can see. <laughs> but there there were some text messages going about, some subtle ones about. Oh, I have a lot of stuff to say about this one, and oh, I don't think that you're gonna feel the same way that I do. So I feel like we're gonna be very divided on this one, which I'm equally as excited and disturbed about because I feel like this was the one that we were gonna come more together on. But now I'm frightened about what were what our opinions are. There were also messages where Mike said we need to cut out the funny on this podcast. He said we are too funny. <laughs> And uh, I said, Mike, we're going to cut you out of this podcast. Uh, yeah, and then there were text messages about this where we said, we got to start making jokes in this podcast because it's terrible. Clearly, and then Mike horrible. was like, yes. And Gary was <laughs> like, I'm offended. <laughs> and then we have to actually start this podcast. So, Mike, tell us what, <laughs> where Frankenstein came from. How did we get Frankenstein in December 1931? Uh, well, it it dropped in November, uh, November 21st, 1930. Well, <laughs> oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> so right out the gate, we're off to a solid start. <laughs> um, but to your credit, as we spoke about in our first episode on Dracula, which is now available on Spotify and iTunes podcasts, um, 1931 brought us not one, but two Universal Monster movies, uh, Frankenstein came uh, right at the tail end of the year. And this adaptation, um, it took a lot of influence from the stage productions, of which there were several, but namely uh, Peggy Webling's play. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the film was actually conceived to be helmed by Robert Florey, who would go on to do 1932's Murders in the Rue Mor Morgue, and star Bell Lugosi, who was obviously hot off the success of Dracula. And while Flory was moved out of the project for unknown reasons to this day, Lugosi even had reservations about taking on a project from the onset because he just found a mute role to be really unbecoming for a guy who had such a burgeoning career. Um, but a test scene of him in actual makeup for this film uh, was filmed, but it's since been lost to time, which has kind of been like a holy grail for universal monster fans. But clearly we're never going to be seeing that. And, um, Although Flory uh, never received credit on American prints uh, of the film, his script outline um, pretty much stayed intact. What we see is pretty much what Flory would have done, um, save for a few revisions. So, yeah, pretty interesting. Let's talk about the Lugosi of it all. That's where I wanted to start. Um, yes. Last last episode, we talked about how Bela Lugosi lobbied really, really hard to play the role of Dracula. But then almost immediately was like, I ain't ever going to play Dracula again. He clearly was, like you said, Mike, the top choice probably coming off that success to play Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. But he kind of was like, nah, I'm too good for Frankenstein. Yeah, I, don't, it, I believe the story goes that he got a little bit big for his britches. Um, where he's like, oh, I conquered, I conquered the stage with Dracula. I conquered the screen with Dracula. I'm done with Dracula forever, and I uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a sex symbol now, kind of uh, if I remember correctly. Where he thought like he was riding real high on it, but uh, yeah, uh... yeah, no, I, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. But to be to be fair to uh, to Lugosi's credit, 
he the role wasn't exactly written um or at least it wasn't pitched to him in the way that of course uh you know, um, Karloff brought it to screen. He really, uh, it was kind of meant to be like a brute, you know, more of a mute role, which Karloff does, but he brought so much more humanity to it. So it kind of felt more like, you know, just like, uh, 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 that really had no interest to him. Whereas his Dracula was all about, you know, atmosphere and, um, just, you know, all the presence that Lugosi brought to it. So I can kind of understand why it probably at the time, felt like I can walk from this because this doesn't really seem something that's up my alley. So we shift from Lugosi to Boris Karloff. Where did Boris Karloff come from? Well, uh, Boris Karloff, uh, interestingly enough, at the time, there's been different accounts as to how he really landed the role, but the one that it seems to be um, the favorite is that he was spotted... Uh, by James Whale in um, The Commissary on the studio backlot. And at the time that he was cast, he actually had about 80 film credits to his name. So it's not like he was some unsung actor. You know, he had been in the business for quite some time, and Frankenstein just seemed to be the big break for him. It's almost like uh, Alan Rickman's uh, Hans Gruber role uh, in Die Hard, where, uh, you know, he was, what, 44, I believe. Uh, well, Karloff was 44 when he was cast for Frankenstein. Yeah, he was in his 40s. Rick Rickman was also in his 40s when he got uh, cast for Hans Gruber. The only difference, of course, being that that was Rickman's first film, as opposed to Karloff. Yeah. Who had blundering in mediocrity. So we're going to talk about Karloff like a lot, guys. Karloff is in, like, all of these movies we're going to talk about over the next 17 years. He's in a whole bunch of these. Would you guys say that Karloff is probably the breakout star of the Universal Monster kind of movie? Uh, I would say he's the breakout. He, he's the naturally occurring breakout star, uh, as opposed to Lon Chaney Jr., who Universal just shoves down everybody's throats, even though he's a mediocre man. Oh, dude, I'm a Lon Chaney Jr. man. Those are fighting words right there. All right, I'll punch you in the mouth. Let's go. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't know. That That's hard to say because I kind of feel like every one of the big monsters, Bella with Dracula and, of course, Boris with Frankenstein, they all kind of brought something to it. But I guess if I was hard pressed, yeah, I think I would say probably Karloff was the, the real true breakout. Um, I mean, I, I hate to kind of make this into a big like Lugosi Karloff debate because I'm sure we'll get into that later down the road. But I just think when you think about the longevity of careers and career choices, I think that Karloff had the most fruitful one after Frankenstein. That's wildly up for debate, but that's what I think. So talking about Karloff, it, it's interesting because the in, I'm going to make this analogy, and I'm sure I'm not the first person who's made this analogy before. But Karloff is like the creature, right? He comes to life, he brings that to life. But the mad scientist who's kind of driving him behind this movie is, is James Whale. And I know he's going to be someone we're going to talk about again. But, um, Mike, what, what is the background on James Whale? Because I know you know it. And I know he's, he's one of those kind of iconic, legendary director names we hear toss about. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. And I, I'm happy that you're bringing this up now because I was going to make this point at some point in the, in the show. Um, James Whale... Uh, perhaps more than any other filmmaker in um, the Universal Monsters legacy. I don't think any other filmmaker had as great and long-lasting as an impression 
on the Universal Monsters and um, its legacy than James Whale did. Uh, he was raised in poverty. He was openly gay, uh, which was a very rare thing to see in the 20s and 30s when he was coming, um, you know, when he was uh, being brought up. Uh, he came from a really, um, really successful stage career, uh, directing stage plays. Uh, and he just brings like re uh, just a real riveting empathy to this outsider tale that's soaked in all these you know German expression expressionistic flourishes. But I think that that goes hand in hand the fact that he was, although he was openly gay and he never shied from it, I think that outsider quality goes hand in hand with the tale of Frankenstein. I think that um, that plays into it, and I think that he brought a lot to it. And the fact that he so he was so deeply involved in every facet of this production, uh, and it just continued. He had so he had, you know, several streaks, um, you know, horror hits for the studio following Frankenstein. 1932's The Old Dark House, which is a classic in its own right, right through 1933's The Invisible Man, and of course, probably his greatest feature in 1935's The Bride of Frankenstein. So, no di no director, really, and we'll get into it more as we talk about the production itself, no director elevated the majesty of the Universal Monsters legacy than Whale, and although it it's, it's important to note that although he's really revered for all of that hard work, Whale's output uh, was vastly diverse, and this is going back to, you know, he did uh, the 1936 musical Showboat starring Irene Dunn, uh, 1939's The Man in the Iron Mask, you know, he, he had a lot, uh, you know, Waterloo Bridge, which he worked with Colin Clive in prior to Frankenstein and brought him um, onto this production, so yeah, again, a really interesting guy, complex, uh, and incredibly talented. And from what I understand, he was kind of courted for this role, right? The Universal and the Lemleys brought him in and kind of gave him his pick of the litter for what movie he wanted to do for them. And he chose Dra uh, Dracula Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah, correct. I mean, th this is going back to, you know, again, when uh, Robert Flory was attached to it, uh, you know, once he left the production for really <laughs> unknown or unclear reasons, uh, James Whale was right there, um, you know, at Universal's, you know you know, command. He was, he was ready to dive right in and, you know, thank God he did. And I guess I said that there's the, you know, there's the creator, James Whale, there's the actor, Boris Karloff, but I think there's one other person who's kind of uh, responsible for the creation of Frankenstein and, and really doesn't get as much credit probably as those two. And that's Jack Pierce, who was the, the makeup um, designer who designed the iconic look for Frankenstein. Um, Mike, you referenced uh, Lugosi's Frankenstein, who kind of looked like uh, Moe from the, the Three Stooges uh, in the, the <laughs> shots and, and art we've seen of that. But Jack Pierce really brought a lot of life to this character. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, unquestionably. I mean, Jack Pierce's uh, contributions, you know, like they, they make as much as the visuals and everything make up. Um, you know, all the touches of the Universal Monster films, as we know it, Jack, Jack Pierce's makeup designs are in a league of their own. I mean, his artistry is unparalleled. Um, and it, it's interesting to note in my research, which I, I actually didn't know at the time, uh, the design was really called from Wales own sketches and Pierce really took sole credit for the monster's square shaped um, skull. But again, you know, the work that he does in Frankenstein was just the tip of the iceberg. He would go on to do 1932's white zombie with Bela Lugosi, the mummy with Karloff again, uh, the invisible man, a long, you know, very impressive career that um, interestingly enough concluded with uh, 
Mr. Ed on television, and then he won a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2003 from the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild, which, uh, you know, I can't imagine anybody more deserving of it. Uh, yeah, I think the, uh, I, th- I think we shouldn't uh, forget that he also, you know, they, they trademarked the makeup design. So that is why uh, it is it is wholly of this particular film and then the subsequent series of movies they make from this. And also, uh, there is no talk about this in the novel. Um, there is, uh, you know, no no other version outside of Universal has the flat head, um, the the bolts which are really conductors uh, on the neck. That's why everything else is. They put bolts on Frankenstein's neck. They're not. They're conductors for electricity. Right. Another big misconception. I'm happy you brought that up. So let's let's talk about that. Um, you mentioned the novel, right? So just like Dracula, this is based on a really, really famous novel. Mary Shelley's um, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, I believe is the actual title of that. I have read that. I read that when I was younger, um, so I don't have a ton of recollection of it. I know about Mary Shelley, which I think is pretty interesting. She wrote this novel, I believe, when she was 19, um, which is pretty awesome. And it was kind of like a bet. Like, the three of us were sitting around. I'm like, James, you can't write a book. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I can. So that's kind of how that that happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, Mary, like, at, at one point, we might want to have a like a special episode about uh mary shelley we might want to have a special episode about um what's his name uh you know all the basically all the authors hg wells when he would talk about invisible man from stoker um but that's another time another place um mary shelley uh was a, a wild woman in the, all the best ways um but she wrote she wrote this story about uh there's a lot of ways to look at it um and looking if, if you read the novel because I, I read it when I was younger and I actually just I banged it out in the last week um, and if you were to read that if you were to read that book and you were to watch this movie you would think that like one of them is fan fiction of the other um, or somebody's like Hey, so what's this book about? Oh, a guy creates a monster, and uh, he may or may not kill some people. Right, and they, that's that's pretty much the only things that are um, that are the same, because uh, every everything we see uh, with the creation of the monster, um, with uh, with with the with Doctor Frankenstein. Uh, God, I'm thinking just young Frankenstein now. Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, when when Franklin Stein um, brings the monster to life, uh, everything we see in the movie is completely uh, just like that makeup, just like the look of the monster. It is 100% the film version of it. They don't. It's. I thought I thought I missed the creation of the monster in the book because. Uh, they don't talk about it. All of a sudden, he's like, "And then I created, I created this being from dead flesh." Uh, nothing about electricity. Um, they did, they did make mention of uh, him having to be uh, enormous size, I guess, for the blood. So I, 
this book couldn't be any more different than this movie and not always in the best ways um but we'll see in uh really bride and even some of sun um that's where they actually use the novel as source are you sure that he did not use electric eels to bring back Robert De Niro? I'm sorry, Frankenstein to life. Are you sure it was not electric eels? Because uh, what, the Frankenstein that I know uses electric eels to bring things back. Electric eels. The yes. Frankenstein that I know is played by Two-Face, and he fights demons uh, for God and country. Dude, that was Gerard <laughs> Butler. He was in that movie. Never forget Jerry Butler. But, <laughs> And for those of you who don't, who don't get what I'm referencing, in the movie Mary Shelley's Fra uh, Frankenstein, <laughs> Kenneth Brogna, who do, I think, did he direct uh, that? Yeah, he, directed directed he directed it and plays Frankenstein, and De Niro plays the monster. He uses electric eels to br to bring him to life. So I, I can't wait till we one day get to that movie because That's, if, that I movie's buck that. wild. I love also, that. Yeah, and I will say the movie's buck wild. It is closer to the book. It is. And it's interesting. You you brought up a good um, point in regards to the source material and the film adaptation. The fact that the film adaptation uses this whole laboratory set and the lightning and thunder and you feel like you kind of like you feel like you missed it in the book or something. It's interesting because it is left pretty vague, even to the point where historians now even debate on it, You could you could definitely argue that there was a supernatural element involved that brought the Frankenstein's monster to life, which is cool. And I think in book form that works. I think that that's interesting because you're not really sure how this monster came to be. You just know that there's, we're just confronted with this God complex now of this, you know, creation. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's definitely interesting. Very, very different from the film adaptation. Yeah. It's interesting to say that because you can really say that, um, that Frankenstein might be one of the first big science fiction movies. More than horror, you know, it's science fiction, it's gothic fantasy, or is it gothic? Because, again, just like Dracula, when does this movie take place? Um, where, where does this movie take place? Where well, is a good question. <laughs> yeah, the, well, How the where, that's, a, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing because when we're watching it, we're assuming that it's some Europe, you know, some European locale. And I had to look into it because I'm like, you know, I think we kind of take it for granted, especially after Dracula. We just assume that we know it's some part of the world. So I looked into that just to make sure it's commonly assumed that the film is set in some European locale. So we were correct. It's confirmed, though, that it's set in the Tyrolean Alps, which is northern Italy, western Austria. Okay. <laughs> we'll go with that, sure. As a child of the late 80s, early 90s, I thought it took place in um, the X-Men continuity, the X-Men cartoon continuities Europe. Uh, because that is everything that they took. All of these movies. <laughs> so, coming off Dracula, which we, we discussed was a gigantic hit for Universal... Was Frankenstein already in production, or did they say, all right, we, let's do another one, and let's get Bella on board. Let, let's jump right into Frankenstein. And we know that they were shot rather quickly, edited quickly, and distributed quickly. Um, was this in the, in the works already, or they said, wow, Dracula's a big thing, let's jump into Frankenstein? 
Um, it was a little ways after. I mean, the turnaround for productions at this time, yeah, were very quick. Um, the film was produced for just shy of $300,000, and it was filmed in just over a month, beginning on August 24th, 1931, and they wrapped on October 3rd. So, yeah, pretty quick turnaround, and then $10,000 of the of the budget um, alone was spent on the film's impressive electrical equipment that made up Frankenstein's laboratory set. Uh, famously... Kenneth Strickfadden in charge of all of those great, you know, electrical probes and everything in that uh, wonderful sequence retained all that equipment in his personal storage and then um, really famously um, allowed Mel Brooks all those years later to use it in Young Frankenstein. Well, we know Carl Emily was really stoked for this movie because on the title card it says his name like 63 times. Did you guys <laughs> notice that? It's like Carl Emily presents a Carl Lemley production. Frankenstein, produced by Carl Lemley, all in that title card. So we get it, bro. We get he was it. A, he was a humble man. Yeah, you might say he's a, he was Brom stoked about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm so sorry, everybody. And I also want to apologize for getting very aggressive with Gary earlier. Uh, <laughs> what did you get aggressive with me about? I said I was going to punch you in the face. And I hey. mean, listen, I'm not going to not do that, but. I don't think that I don't think anybody listening to us needs to hear. There's that. a lot of reacts here on Skype. Punch is not one of them. And quite honestly, the aggression is probably warranted. This is the Frankenstein <laughs> episode, right? Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> so let's get into it. Are you guys ready to hear what this movie is about? Okay. <laughs> let's go. Um, full disclosure, my plot summary might have more lines of dialogue than the actual movie because this movie you said they filmed it in a month mike what did they do for the other 29 days in, in production <laughs> we're talking about frankenstein and it's about i think this was like a made for tv after school special right because it's about 45 minutes long this movie yeah. but let's jump into it shall we let's Colin Clive plays Henry, don't call me Victor Frankenstein, a young doctor of something who spends his evenings hanging out in graveyards with his pal Fritz, played delightfully by Dwight Fry. Henry, Henry is gathering body parts from recently deceased corpses to create, his, uh, uh, create a new human. Henry and Fritz have built a lab in an abandoned windmill in the Bavarian Alps. That's what Wikipedia said, Bavarian, and I just thought of pretzels. Um, mm. Henry plans to use electricity to bring his creation to life. Henry's fiance, Elizabeth, is concerned that her betrothed is living with a strange man and asks her friend Victor, don't call me Henry, for help. They go to visit Dr. Waldman, Henry's former mentor at the local university. In fact, it was actually Waldman's classroom that Fritz stole the brain for their creature, although he accidentally stole the brain of a criminal, an abnormal brain, in Abby normal brain, actually. Uh, so Elizabeth, Victor, and Waldman go to visit Henry on the same night that Henry plans to revive his creation. The group bears witness as Henry brings his creation to life with some lightning and some supernatural forces, potentially. Frankenstein's creation, played by Boris Karloff, is now alive, but is constantly tortured by Fritz because Fritz is a dick. The creature kills Fritz because, again, Fritz is a dick and attacks Henry and Waldman. Henry's father and his neck tumor show up and talk with Henry and talk to him, talk, talk him into returning home. 
why the second I rewatched this, I was like, which one of them is going to bring up the neck tumor? <laughs> but I digress. Please continue. Waldman vows to destroy the monster. And I don't mean the tumor. <laughs> Henry is nursed back to health by Elizabeth, and their wedding is finally planned. Waldman takes way too much time writing his notes and underlining words for no reason, which allows the monster to wake up, kill Waldman, and escape. The creature roams the Bavarian, maybe, countryside and happens across a farmer's daughter named Maria. Maria is kind to the creature and shows him how flowers can float when she throws them in the lake. That day, the creature's heart grew three sizes. However, Maria doesn't float and drowns when the creature throws her into the water. On Henry and Elizabeth's wedding day, the creature shows up to their home and attacks Elizabeth. Maria's father brings his uh, daughter's deceased body to town to see the Burgermeister and tell everyone that she's been murdered. An angry mob takes to the hills where Henry is captured by the creature and taken to another abandoned windmill. Henry is thrown off the windmill and the mob burns it to the ground with the creature inside. Old man Frankenstein celebrates with a good laugh at his son's expense as we end the film. That was, uh, that was beautiful, Gary. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh man. So something that I, that I noticed, I mean, you're three minutes into this, this film and you're like, listen, I know, I know the idea, the concept of Frankenstein. Uh, his name is not Henry. <laughs> uh, and I, uh, now I don't know if that was if that was changed for the play, if that was changed to make it more Americanized. Gary, that was, that was exactly it. So the the producers thought that Victor was a little too harsh of a name, so they little, named the creepy little, best friend Victor. It's a little uh, little ethnic. Is that what you saying? Uh, maybe. Maybe. My guess is that's what they said. Um, but here's the thing. So all the names, most of the names in this movie are found somewhere in the book. Um, so in the book, it Henry Frank, uh, Frankenstein is Victor Frankenstein, uh, as he is in literally every other version of this. Right. Um, then you have his best friend, uh, who in the movie is Victor. Victor Victor Moritz? In the book, he's actually uh, Henry Claval, and the maid that the monster frames for the murder of Victor's young brother is uh, last name is Moritz. So that's where they get the name from. They get it from the the murdered or the the framed and then hung uh, to death maid. Uh, and then they switched Victor and Henry's first names. Again, I don't remember much from the books. I read it uh, maybe 20 years ago. Is Does he have an assistant? Is Fritz a thing? And obviously, you know, let's just point it out here. Everyone thinks it's I Igor, but Igor comes later on in this series, yeah. and, and that yeah. is not Frankenstein's uh, assistant. So does he have an assistant? No. Um, not, not really. Um, actually, no, not at all. Fritz was completely made up for uh, this. Uh, now you do have the, the hunchback uh, look. Uh, but so so much of what we think uh, 
when we think of uh, Frankenstein comes from the sequels, um, comes from the later Monster Rally movies. Um, it's it's a it's a real uh, it's a mandala effect. Um, plain and simple. Let's give it up for Dwight Fry right here and right now, though. He is two for two on uh, Universal Monster Movies for being potentially the MVP of the cast. Um, I was watching this with my wife, and she goes, that guy looks like the Dracula's crazy friend. I'm like, oh, yeah, because it is. She's like, wow, I didn't I'm, I'm Crazy good. friend. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that old school studio system. Are we going to see Dwight Fry again? I don't remember. Is he in another? Is he coming up in anything else? Uh, yeah, we'll see him again um, in the sequel. Spoiler alert! I I hope he's not playing Fritz because Fritz dies mysteriously somehow. We'll get. To I it. guess you'll have to tune in and find <laughs> out. <laughs> so when the movie opens, um, first of all, I love the the title credit scene, right? Where where they show the cast, and it's funny at the end they even say like a cast this great, we got to show it twice, which I thought was cool. But the big difference in the beginning, it says the monster played by question mark, but at the end they say Karloff's name. I thought that was cool. Um, the first scene really creepy. Really, really creepy of them just hanging out at the graveyard, watching a funeral go down. Yeah, I, I think that that whole from the prologue that they start with, which was something that um, they nixed from the conclusion of Dracula because they were afraid that people were going to kind of, you know, run with a belief in the supernatural. They implemented a prologue before Frankenstein that you have Edward Van Sloan uh, warning audiences about what they're about to see. It's great showmanship, but it also kicks the film off on a genuinely eerie note. To your point, right into that graveyard scene where, again, we see that, like, fantastic German expressionistic backdrop, you know, the shadows, the the whole graveyard set with uh, Frankenstein and Fritz just kind of looking at this burial and then, of course, going into dig up the body or the pieces of it for their own personal uses so yeah it's it's a fantastic scene that sets the tone for the entire film what was a weird scene was the scene that comes right after that though so fritz and frankenstein have dug up the body they're bringing it back to their windmill castle and they see the man hanging in the tree yeah. so fritz goes i got it and he climbs up there he's super eager to cut this guy down we don't know who this guy is, why he's hanging in a tree. Was he lynched? Was he murdered? Um, but that scene is useless because they don't use his body any. I mean, I guess it sets up that they need a brain because they were going to use that guy's brain. Um, my question is, why couldn't they use the brain from the, the body that they dug up? It was too dead. Oh. Uh, yeah, I believe, I, I think part of it is uh, was like de the degradation of the organs, possibly... The body might have been without it. Um, who knows? Yeah. Not me. They don't talk about it much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the body that they cut down, it's not... Because um, we don't really know up until we get back to Frankenstein's um, laboratory how far along he is in the in you know the you know in the making of the creature so it stands to reason that the body that they chopped down they could have used an arm both arms a leg to kind of you know assemble him so they could have used that guy for most of his body parts we don't really know but i, I always assumed that's what they used him for uh yeah i mean the fact that he's hanging uh certainly leads leads you to believe that he is uh, a criminal of some kind mm -hmm. and i think that maybe that might actually be a reference to the novel uh, pushed by Sapphire, where um, 
they uh they even say uh Frankenstein's mentor even says that's a criminal brain. He's the criminal brain, so he's bound to evil. So I want to point out here, I think it's a good time to, to call out Colin Clive, who gives an absolutely stellar performance in this movie. In my opinion, Incredible. I know I know this is going to be controversial. I think he's the best best actor in this movie. I think he has the best performance. Obviously, Karloff does, does great, but I think his best work is to come. I think Colin Clive does a really terrific job here. Um, Mike, do you have any background on Colin Clive? I know you do. Yeah, um, definitely. And I agree with you again, like Colin Clive is really the standout in this film. And and the reason he's so great is sort of a it's sort of a tragic double edged sword. Um, he was a guy that suffered from a lot of inner demons. Um, his drinking problems were actually a, a major cause for concern. And uh, it had, you know, the studio, there was a, there was a lot of serious reservations about casting Clive, but luckily James Whale really persisted and kind of championed him and handled him with a lot of sensitivity, which, you know, to the betterment of monster kids everywhere, film history, horror history, we got that incredible performance from him. But again, these are, you know, it's roles like Frankenstein and other things that he played in his very, very brief career. Um that kind of demonstrated the demons that he was going through. I mean, like I said, he was a really bad alcoholic and, you know, really tragically alcoholism would uh, claim his life. Uh, 1937 at the age of 37. So, you know, a really short career, but I, I mean, the credits that he's in, namely Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, you know, they're performances that have lived on They're You know, he's just magnificent in this film. Yeah, I mean it's it's shocking because he is he's so good in this movie and yet he only has eighteen credits. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, impressive, I think. So also in the cast we soon meet May Clark, who plays Elizabeth Lavenza, I think is her last name. I don't even know if they say it in the movie. I just read it off Wikipedia, I'll be honest with you. But May Clark, I think she is first of all, she is quite pretty in this movie. She is very, very beautiful. And um, she's great. I think she is uh, a real standout here. I actually think in the two movies we watch, she gives the best performance by an actress. Like if we're going to give Oscars for these two movies, she has the better performance than we got last week from uh, Lucy or um, uh, Nina. Yeah, I I mean, 100%. And I, I think as we go through the credits, that's like a huge change of pace between Dracula and Frankenstein is that the acting the actors all around are just playing on a completely like other level than the people in Dracula. That's not to say that the actors in Dracula are terrible, but when you have a a director like Todd Browning who came from silence and who was largely, you know, grew really disinterested in the production and was quite fearful of working and talking pictures, you can see how that, you know, impacted the performances or lack thereof. But yeah, May Clark is just one, um, one instance of a great, performance and uh, interestingly enough betty davis was at one time considered for that role into it so then we also meet john bowles who plays victor mortez um who wants to fuck elizabeth that's for sure that's his yep. whole character yeah <laughs> nope, he's a real one-trick pony a real a real shitty best friend Mm-hmm. that's his whole character there and then um i believe it's during this scene or, or maybe a little bit later i'm confusing my elizabeth's house scenes but we also meet the and the real mvp of this movie guys frederick kerr playing baron frankenstein this guy chews up every scene that he's in and i i wanted to i want to learn about him i want to know about him 
I want to see what he does on a daily basis. You want to chew know... that neck tumor off? <laughs> oh, yeah. I hope somebody <laughs> looked at that and was like, guy, you got to get that checked out. Um, man, this guy is awesome. I don't understand the politics of wherever town they live in, but he's he's in charge, it seems. Him and the Burgermaster are in charge, and I don't get it, but he, uh, this guy's awesome. He, he, actually, I shouldn't say awesome. He's a despicable person, but yeah, uh, he, he does a good job in that role. Yeah, he's just, he's hilarious just the way he treats the Burgermaster every time. Uh, yeah, so um, he he is he is uh, Baron Frankenstein, so he's Baron of the region, I guess, and the, the Burgermeister... Uh, I mean, I guess the term, just the usage of the term Burgermeister makes you figure that it's some Germanic Alpi area. Uh, but that means that like, he's basically the he's basically the the mayor. He's the master of the town or the borough. Um, so it's basically he's the he's the mayor while Frankenstein, you know, Baron Frankenstein is. He's the Baron, I guess he's, you know, yeah. doing Baronly things, whatever that. <laughs> and, and Frederick Kerr, guys, uh, he lived until 1933 when he died of cancer. So the other person that we get to meet early oh, on. Oh, okay. <laughs> lung cancer. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was lung cancer. But the uh, other I mean, person. Could we... it have been neck cancer? And Gary, <laughs> you're making fun of it, you monster. I'm not. It was lung cancer. I knew it was lung cancer, but I just wanted to set that up there. Then we meet Edward Van Sloan, the other kind of the other lead character in this movie. Yeah, playing old man. Wald man. Yeah, he's pretty rad. Uh, Edward Van Sloan, again, they've reused him again from Dracula. I think he chews up scenery in this movie. Does a great job. Kind of wish it was just Van Helsing again. Be like, yo, what up? Van Helsing's here. Um, I mean, he's bad. playing a wait, very similar role. Wait for totally. it. Totally. Just wait for it. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be he's back. He's coming. He's coming back. Don't worry, buddy. He's, when last we left Edward Van Sloan, he's like, I know I killed Dracula, but I'm gonna hang out down in this basement for a bit, yeah. guys. <laughs> so, Doctor Waldman is Henry's mentor, former teacher. How, like, what is Henry a doctor of? I have so many questions uh, about uh, this. He's a doctor of, of science and madness. Got it. Mad science. science. Yeah, Correct. And comb offers. I'm a, I'm a doctor of many important things. Uh, science and the brain and the body and uh, playing God mostly. So that is so where I got what was Elizabeth's understanding of like where Henry rent went because they were engaged and she's like, yeah, Henry's just up in that castle for months. I don't know what's going on. What what was happening here? Did he be like, hey guys, I got to do this experiment. Leave me alone for a bit or what? Do you guys know? Um. So yeah, I mean it's one of the one of the big. The big differences between the, the book and film uh, is that at least when he creates the monster in uh, in Mary Shelley's novel, uh, he does it while he is at the university, uh, while it. he is away at school, uh, not while he is in the family castle that the family's not allowed to come into, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, he's definitely not in school anymore. He's he's a middle-aged man at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, for his, he's, I mean, all right. If you want to go dark, he is beyond middle age. Oh, boy. Oh, oh. boy. 
Oh, boy. <laughs> Moving right along. So Victor and Waldman and Elizabeth are all like, let's go see Henry. And it just happens to be the day that Henry's like, today's the day. Today's the day I bring this guy back to life. <laughs> I'm going to be God. I'm do you think like, he woke up that day and was like, ah, let's do it today? Or like, did they have... They didn't have the Weather Channel right back then, right? Like, they didn't know. Like, <laughs> no, I guess. You know. Yeah, like he had them uh, probably packed in ice, maybe some salt uh, for a while, and just they just, like, they just oh, did the wait, old waiting for them storm clouds, baby. Yeah, the old the old finger test. Just Ooh, yeah, I, I seems see like it's gonna rain today. I see the leaves turning upwards to cut that rain. Hopefully, this. Ooh, my my the hairs on my arm are standing up. There's some electricity in the air today. <laughs> but but all jokes aside, I mean this is this is the iconic scene from this movie and one of the most iconic scenes in cinema history when he brings the the creature back to life and the it's alive, it's alive like that is would say whatever you will about the rest of this movie, and I will, but this scene stands the test of time as a fantastic scene. It's one of the best scenes. Yeah, it, I mean, it's, you know, it's the one that gets, like, you know, the footage gets recycled and, you know, everything and everything to weird science and 85, you know, we, we see it again and again because it's so iconic. But that scene in particular, as well as a later scene um, where a drowning takes place, those scenes caught the most brunt from censorship groups all across uh, the country, uh, namely in this scene, they took a lot of objection to Clive's um, God statements of, you know, after he's brought the creature to life of him saying something along the lines of now I know what it feels like to be God and stuff like that. So that that created a lot of um, a lot of friction with censorship groups to the point where cuts had to be made, where if all the cuts that they wished um, to have implemented this, the runtime would have literally been cut in half. And this film is roughly only 70 minutes, which is crazy to think all that. But, um, the, the drowning sequence was in fact removed, but it wasn't re, uh, reinstated until sometime in the 1980s. But all of this hoopla about censorship groups and, you know, cuts that had to be made in 1931 didn't really do much. If anything, um, the extreme content, it just raised awareness and increased the box office returns for Universal. So they were all good. So the creature's alive. We see Karloff in all of his glory and... I think they, they said it took four hours to apply the makeup, four hours to take off the makeup. So this was a long day for Karloff. Um, first time we see him, he's walking backwards up the stairs because, you know, that's what you do when you're a zombie. And uh, we have the, another wonderful scene where we need to point out how great Karloff is. And that's when, when Henry shows him sunlight for the first time. And that is just terrific acting from Karloff there. Uh, you know, he, 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 he embodies this, like, this, this creature with, that kind of has the mind of, of a child who's learning things for the first time, but is sort of familiar with them. I don't know. It's hard to describe, but he just does a, a, such a terrific job um, in, the, in that one scene. I think it's, 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 it's so well acted. Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, again, it, it's like that child 
like innocence that he has, but he doesn't know, you know, um, the limits of his own strength and what he can accomplish. I mean, that's why there's all these like really sweet moments when he encounters the little girl Maria to, um, you know, his fear of fire of just not understanding basic things. It's, it's really an incredible performance. I mean, Jack Pierce's makeup heightens it, but that doesn't matter when the actor behind the makeup isn't giving you a really incredible nuanced performance. And that's exactly what Karloff does. Uh, yeah. And I think that the, uh, Gary, you said, I'm sorry, you Mike, or was it you Gary said childlike wonder? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this whole thing. And again, uh, it's one of the, one of the big takeaways of the, that they uh, do bring from the novel is, the, the creature, the monster, uh, Adam, uh, if you will, is a child. Mm-hmm. He is is uh, he is Frankenstein's child, and he's learning. And it's it's the we see this. We're going to see that arc throughout all of the Frankenstein movies. Actually, is that he his knowledge is intelligence increases throughout and unfortunately we will see it where when he's when he does something wrong like a child might do instead of being scolded and taught he is beaten and shunned and that creates the animosity that's why when he meets the little girl playing a game he is he doesn't you know, he never, he doesn't do violence to the child maliciously. It's accidental because he doesn't know because he's a child himself. Right, right. And I think that's what's so interesting about this character is that you call him a monster, but he's really kind of the mo- most innocent person in this whole movie. Um, and I, I, you, you see later sure on in, in a lot of other media, you know, I, I think specifically of Monster Squad or, or cartoons or whatnot, where Frankenstein's monster frankenstein for lack of a better term is uh not necessarily a villain all the time he's usually portrayed as kind of a big lovable you know guy who's who's just misunderstood or doesn't understand what he's doing um so i think that's interesting you know who's a straight up villain though that douchebag fritz that guy's a jerk yeah Yeah. he's bad i wish upon him all the bad things in the world well he gets the bad thing he gets dead somehow somehow he gets dead i'm not they didn't really make it clear how he was dead but he was dead he yeah that's the thing like this whole thing we've been talking about it with frank and with the monster being this you know this creature a victim of circumstance really um nuanced childlike not knowing you know the limitations or extents of his own you know brute strength and whatnot um it's just it's just such a fantastic nuanced performance and he he's the most emotional um he's the most emotionally rewarding and sympathetic of the universal monsters because again he's not a monster that's just out to terrorize people um which again is very much like how dracula is i mean again you know he had you know dracula wasn't always a vampire but once he became it he just is he's a you know he's a bloodsucker that's what he's out to do whereas frankenstein he didn't ask to be born nobody asked to like put him you know he he wasn't begging people to put him together so he's kind of thrown into this world that he knows nothing of so obviously what people don't understand they want to destroy but an interesting thing just because you brought up um that asshole fritz 
um, and <laughs> and his bitter demise, which is so great because th this is interesting. Okay, so rewinding a little bit, we see um, Fritz go in to steal uh, the brain, the healthy brain, which of course he drops and shatters, so he has to resort to getting the abnormal criminal brain. Now, here's something that's interesting that I thought. Now, Fritz is like the mistreated subordinate to Dr. Frankenstein. We see it early on, you know, Dr. Frankenstein's constantly telling him to shut up and do things. He's a complete peon. We understand his role very well. So then when something like the creature is born, he's obviously, at least from Fritz's perspective and anybody seeing it, he's working on a completely, you know, you know, different wavelength. He's not all there. So Fritz immediately sees him as that he himself can abuse. But it's interesting because they they implement this abnormal criminal brain into Frankenstein that's supposed to signify that it's not the smartest of brains. But I want to debate that a little bit because once you see Fritz is constantly harassing him with fire, we, we know very early on that the creature's afraid of fire. He's He's terrified of it. And that, of course you know, comes full circle in the end of this film. So he's using that, Fritz is using that to abuse him. And then, of course, you know, um, it comes to bite him in the ass when the monster finally kills him. But it's the way that when we finally go into that crypt where the monster is being held and Fritz, we see him dead, he's hanging. So that leads me to believe that if the monster was that childish and didn't really know better, he would have just destroyed him with his brute strength very easily. But the fact that Fritz put him through all of this abuse, the fact that we see him hanging, makes me feel like he wanted this character now to suffer. He wanted him to feel pain in a really excruciating manner. So I think that that's something that I've never seen anybody mention that before. And I just watching it again uh, for this episode, I, I just thought that that was kind of an interesting thing to pick up on, you know, like because any other time he does it with Maria that it, it just comes naturally where he thinks he's playing. But with Fritz, it's like this is somebody that he wants to obviously, you know, seek vengeance upon and he does it in a manner that he could have easily snapped his neck but he doesn't he d he does it he hangs him which is a far more brutal way to go um that's a very interesting point mike uh now the the question that i have uh i think maybe they might have gone with the hanging for a couple of reasons and i think it's it comes down to one this is based on a stage play and two, um, their abilities to show violence and how far they would go, like what kind of violence they would show. Because let's be honest, they remake this now, they do a shot for shot remake. The, the monster does not hang Fritz, the monster pulls Fritz's arms out of his, off of his body and beats him with it, probably. Sure. Uh, I think, I think it might have been more of a, like gore kind of if that or them avoiding any kind of gore or the like hey uh we gotta we gotta get rid of like this guy's obviously a villain for sure we gotta take him off the plate how are we gonna do that it's like well why don't we just have the monster murder him it's like yeah but we're not really making the monster seem like a very bad creature uh even though he is 
getting repeatedly whipped by Fritz. Oh, let's let's just hang him. Even even when the monster kills Waldman, um, that's out of pretty much self preservation and self defense. Waldman's going to destroy him, um, so he only kills him for self defense. There, Fritz, of course, was attacking him. You could argue that with self defense, and then Maria was an accident. So he's not a murderer in the sense of like Dracula's a murderer or something like that. So that uh, I mean, he's a murderer. I don't think he's a, he's not necessarily a killer. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's that's the tragedy of the monster. That's it, really what it is. It's done out of you know he he kills out of uh, self preservation or, or accidents. Um, he doesn't. Uh, not, nothing is done maliciously, uh, with the exception of I don't know maybe when he when he captures uh, Henry. Henry and uh, what is he gonna do? Is, what is he gonna toss him out of toss him off of the windmill at the end? We don't really know what the game plan is. Right. So then I think the the other lasting scene from this movie, and it is probably the creepiest scene, is the interaction between Frankenstein and Maria. Um, it's, it's shot differently than the rest of the movie, I'm sure intentionally. It feels almost out of place and eerie. Um, which which is a which is great, and it makes it that you know, makes it a scary scene, probably the scariest scene in the movie, because we know who Frankenstein is, and there's just that underwhelming sense of dread that's that's kind of bubbling up underneath this scene but it's also a really sweet scene it's it's a genuine like good-hearted person trying to you know this little girl trying to just talk to this guy and be his friend uh actually it's frankenstein's monster uh and a lot of people really confuse that (laughs) oh damn it (laughs) my favorite favorite main character in legend of zelda is zelda he's so cool i love him (laughs) And I one hundred percent agree. It is it's there's the creeping dread of like, oh, this monster is going to like is going to hurt this little girl. But then you see it's the innocence of a it's it's a scene between two children, is is, yeah. is what it is. And you see that while everybody who has seen the monster at this point has cowered in fear and horror of what it Specifically, what the creature looks like. Uh, right. This child doesn't know these prejudices. Uh, prejudices. I'll get it eventually. Uh, and she accepts him and plays a game with him. Uh, unfortunately, again, because he is <laughs> he's a newborn child, uh, does not understand uh, human mortality. Doesn't understand water. Doesn't, you know, doesn't understand swimming and, you know, unfortunately, uh, R.I.P. Maria. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that sequence is awesome. It's, it's a tonal curveball from what the rest of the film is. But it's just like, again, I, I lean more into it feeling sweet. And again, it's just like tragic. You know what I mean? I think that that's why the monster relates um, to so many people. It's not because like oh, here's this menacing-looking monster and he's got cool makeup. Like, yeah, that's all there, too. But again, it goes back to, like, the core of this character. It's just, it's seeped in tragedy, and it, and I think that that's why people love the tale so much, um, the monster himself, because it's for moments like that where you feel like, oh, there's a, there's a bit of lightness here, and um, the people that I think do relate to him 
understand that this monster kind of got a bad break and then once he sees somebody that he sees as his equal we think oh this is great this is a moment of you know um levity here and then of course it goes terribly wrong but again that's the tragedy of Frankenstein's monster one other star that i wanted to talk about um now that we're talking about just that scene and and that is edison and not thomas edison who in my research i found out did direct a stage version of frankenstein which is weird but yeah. Arthur, Arthur Edison, or Edson, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And that's the cinematographer who worked on this movie. Let me just give you some of his other film credits, other than Frankenstein. The Thief of Baghdad, Maltese Falcon, and Casablanca. This guy probably knows what he's doing. Probably a pretty good cinematographer, I would guess. So, yeah, half, halfway decent career right there. <laughs> and the cinematography, we talked a lot about it during Dracula, but... It's, it's equally good in this movie in a different way. It's, it's almost twisted. It, it's, it's, it's eerie, and specifically in the beginning of the movie where they're in that, uh, like, Frankenstein's lab or the hallway shots, there's a lot of uh, blurry scenes. There's a lot of scenes filmed at an angle, and I love how intentional that was. Um, one shot really sticks out to me is when Elizabeth goes to the castle and Henry's there, in the window and you can't see him. He's, he's very blurry standing up there. And that, I mean, we don't need to talk about the symbolism there, but Arthur Edson, an, a great cinematographer, um, obviously did a great job in this movie. Spectacular. So we're getting near the end of kind of the plot summary here. Um, I do, I, I would be remiss to not point out the very bad, um, like uh sheet that they were in front of that was supposed to be the sky at the end. Like, couldn't you just film that outside? I know I'm nitpicking a movie that's 90 years old. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh the ending is really tragic. Um for a couple reasons. One, it ruined Karloff's life carrying uh Colin Clive up and down those ladders all day. Um he had back problems for the rest of his life because he really had to carry, you know, Colin Clive's body up and down about 400 ladders it seemed like donkey kong level how many ladders were in that windmill um <laughs> there's actually a uh, there's a, a we we know for a fact that karloff was not at the premiere of the movie um it is up to de- it's up for debate was uh if he missed it because he wasn't invited because oh he's just some guy in makeup mm-hmm. or he had serious medical problems because James Well made him do take after take, carrying this six foot one man up and down ladders and stairs the entire time. Right. You know, um, this is probably a good a time as any since we're getting um, a wire. And this, again, because every film is its own beast, and I don't try to, you know carry one prejudice for a film to another one but this is a complete 360 to how i felt with dracula the lack of score in dracula where i felt lessened the picture's impact is the complete opposite i feel like in frankenstein it's a similar approach but it surprisingly strengthens the proceedings in my uh, in my opinion um and it just adds you know just the visuals themselves add so much emphasis to the film where you don't need some dramatic score. So again, I know a total pivot change, but I don't think that um, a score was needed. So they made the right call by not really implementing one. That's very interesting. I, I, I 
consciously knew there was no music in this movie watching it. I didn't hear music, but I, it was not as as recognizable as the lack of music in in Dracula. And I think that's because this movie, while yes, there's plot holes and it, 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 it there's there's issues with with the story. The pacing is very quick. It's a it, the movie moves very fast, yeah. whereas sometimes Dracula dragged a little bit. Um, Frankenstein moves very, very quickly. It's a brisk 71 minutes because, I mean, we're already at the end of the movie um, where Henry Frankenstein somehow survives the worst fall onto a windmill that any human being can survive. Um, <laughs> he gets messed up real bad. And they they burn the wind, the angry mob led by the Burgermaster um, burns the windmill down to the ground. But I like the ambiguity of the ending, right? We don't know if the creature dies. Um, my question for either of you guys, do you know if this this like coda was tacked on with Baron Frankenstein going, he's going to be okay, gang. He's going to be all right. Uh, that was 100%. I think um, I can't I can't imagine a world where that wasn't tacked on after the initial cut. And they're like, oh man, this this shit is dark now. <laughs> and like, yeah. no, because like, that's what, isn't it? You just see it's him and the maids, right? Yeah. Him, him having a drink with his tumor and the maids. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's so, <laughs> it it's so tacked on, in fact, that when the next time you do watch it, the um his father like you said is with the maids in the foreground but in the background it's so tacked on that they couldn't even get colin clive and <laughs> the actress back so those are actually stand-ins that you see in the back and uh, again like they 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 tacked that on because i guess they they recognized what a, a hit they had on their hands so they didn't want people to assume that um frankenstein was dead uh but it's fine. I mean, it's fine. It's, again, it's a little, it's a little abrupt. I think that if they would have ended the film where they ended it, it would have been even more impactful. But again, that's like nitpicking. But again, that whole mob mentality sequence—it's like the great, you know, mob mentality sequence ever. To you know, where they're all with you know the the torches leading to the windmill, which again, another incredible incredibly photographed sequence that just again atmosphere everything that the universal monster films became like at their best is kind of personified in the opening sequence of this film the creation of the of frankenstein's monster and the concluding one so much so that that windmill sequence it's so influential that it's seen countless times i mean we saw it mimicked again um almost 30 years later in Hammer's The Brides of Dracula. We would see it again all the way in 1999 when Tim Burton would do Sleepy Hollow, an incredibly underrated film that I watch practically every Halloween season. And then we would see it again in 2012 from Burton again when he did Frankenweenie, the stop-motion feature of his own 1984 short film. So again, uh, uh, not just the film itself, which a lot of people take tremendous influence from it's that sequence in particular that seems people just love the look of it and kind of want to do their version of it yeah i mean for sure we get the the whole idea of mobs with torches and pitchforks directly from this scene um but to, to speak on that to speak on that uh weird weird happy ending uh, that does not fit one frame of the rest of the movie um i want to i want to get 
I want to I want to poise a question about this. Uh, do either one of you think that they ever planned on making a follow up to this at the time of filming? Obviously, you make it now. You make a remake of it now. Everything is a franchise. Everything is a shared universe. Everything is going to get a sequel, a prequel, uh, three TV spinoffs, and a comic book. When they made this, do you think they had any plans to make another one? I I don't know. And, and Mike, as more of a film historian than I am, you might be able to answer this. I don't know if sequels were even a thing back 90 years ago. I, I can't think of any prominent sequels that came out um, back then. So I'm not sure. I think they just thought, really, from a studio standpoint, this ending is really, really dark. You know, movies don't have... we Every movie we put out has to have a happy ending of some sort. Dracula dies at the end of Dracula, and everyone's happy for the most part. Um, we have to have a happy ending here. So, I, I Duke Duke lives. Duke's alive, guys! Right. G.I. Joe, the movie reference. So, um, yeah, we'll I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if sequels Op- were even a thing. Optimus dies to Duke could live. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, that that's a good point. I mean, we, we really don't know. I mean, obviously, again, they tacked the ending on because they didn't want to end it on that. So I think that there was a light that there's more to this story that we can that we can explore. But yeah, I mean, the sequels were not a very common thing in, in that day. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the decades to follow, just sequels weren't very common. I mean, pe- people were talking how, you know, peculiar it was that The Godfather at the time was getting a sequel. So sequels overall never really seemed like a, a commonplace thing. But luckily they did. But again, I mean, it it's boils down to different opinions. And I, I guess this might be the one thing that might take away from my rating. If there's any, you know, you know, quote unquote imperfections or grievances that I have with this film, it's, it's sort of a wash because yeah, the, the film would have benefited and probably would have been even more strengthened than it already is. If we would have just closed on, uh, the monster and his creator dying in the windmill because it's just, it's like a circle of life, you know, sort of thing, you know, uh, Dr. Frankenstein brought this creation. It's only like, it's poetically fitting that they would both die for their sin, you know, their unintentioned sins. But on the other hand, it's like, well, it's a good thing that they did kind of tack on that, you know, cheap ending uh in a sense to know that dr frankenstein is still alive so that we could get um more films out of it but it doesn't sit well because uh dr frankenstein doesn't really there's no um there's no real repercussions for his actions you know that that's the only damaging thing from um, a character point of view i think yeah i mean you definitely say that uh Whatever the initial intentions were, this this uh, little tacked on scene at the end winds up paying dividends, not even with Bride of Frankenstein so much as Son of Frankenstein. Um, because, uh, and let me know if I'm incorrect here, uh, Baron Frankenstein toasts to not only the, the, the happy marriage that just occurred, I guess, at the... Uh, at Victor's uh, recovery bed, uh, but apparently he's well enough to procreate because he's got a grandkid on the way already. Apparently, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, we we'll, we see that like 
yeah, um, two two Frankenstein movies later, we're following up with uh, not one but two of these Frankenstein kids. Can I? Can I just put this out there in the world? Are you ready for it? Are I'm you horrified? But go on. Are you ready for it? Yes, Elizabeth was pregnant at the end of that movie. Who's to say it was Henry's? And I'm not saying it was Victor's either. We get the scene that we didn't talk about where the monster goes to see Elizabeth in her room. He climbs in through the window and he gives her this this thing. <laughs> That's the noise he makes, Are guys. You... Oh, you mean, the, you mean that you sequence that in and of itself is a plot hole because how did the creature know that that's where Victor or yeah, that's where yeah, Henry yeah, and his wife yeah. lived, right? I know right. about like I like you know I like horny Frankenstein monster. You're making, <laughs> you're making a thing. that is what he does, and like Karloff's making some choices. So what I'm not I'm not saying anything. I'm just putting that fact out there in the world that the we only want... time we ever saw anything sexual in the movie was wow, and then all of a sudden this chick's <laughs> pregnant. So all I'm saying that is all I'm saying. You you just you just planted the small acorn that will grow a great oak to our listeners now. Every time they watch that sequence, they're gonna think that Frankenstein. When we I, get to Son of Frankenstein, I am gonna be I'm gonna be I'm like that is that Henry's kid? I don't know. Gotta do a DNA test. Hate <laughs> everything about this plot thread. <laughs> well, then that I guess if James is telling us he hates everything about this plot, we should go to our summaries and final ratings, as you guys know. We give each movie um, a review, one through five, five being the highest, one being the lowest. So we're going to start with uh, our resident biggest Frankenstein fan in the world. He's got a Frankenstein back tattoo. He's wearing a Frankenstein shirt right now. His dog is named Frankenstein. His wife is named Frankenstein. <laughs> this guy loves Frankenstein. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mike Kenny. Mike Give us the five for Frankenstein. We know you're going to give us. Okay, well, one of those things that you mentioned is untrue, and I'm not <laughs> going to tell you which. <laughs> um, I will surprise you a wee bit. Again, this all goes back, I think, to... It's like a trifecta here. It's James Whale, it's Boris Karloff, it's Colin Clive. It's these three pieces that really made... Um, a spectacular film. I think that this is one of the best films. And again, going back to what I said way, way, way back um, at the start of this episode, it's that James Whale brought um, just kind of uh, an artistic touch to this film and all of his subsequent films uh, in the Universal Monster catalog that just set the bar so high that I I really don't even know that they could top it ever again if Whale wasn't in it. That's not to say that there weren't great films after. There certainly were. But he he just, his DNA is just completely embedded in the legacy of these things because he touched, you know, so many cornerstones of it. Um, Karloff's performance, it's nuanced, it's emotional, it's scary, it's its iconic. And then Colin Clive's, again, gone way too soon. Um, another tragic performance that just... It's the yin and the yang between him and his creation that make it, again, the production design, fantastic. The lack of music, where it, whereas I thought it hurt Dracula, it immensely helps Frankenstein. Again, a credit to whale's direction and the spectacular performances now the only thing again i mentioned again uh, a little bit ago was just 
the fate of Dr. Frankenstein, his creation. I don't, I think that that tacked on ending, it's just not, it's just really unnecessary. Like it's, it's all there just to show that Dr. Frankenstein lives and maybe he will create again to some degree, but I think it's a little disingenuous because it, it just, again, it doesn't feel like that character really learned anything. It's like he, he did something unspeakable just he, you know, he, he did something unspeakable and he didn't understand, um, you know, the, the limits of his own power at that point. So he, he doesn't, he didn't really, uh, he didn't really pay for that. And I think that the ending, if both of them would have died, you know, quote unquote died, it would have been more dramatically um, lasting than what we get. And I think that they could have made another film as they did um, that uh, brought them back into it and and it wouldn't have shortchanged the film. But yeah, I just think that that ending of just seeing them okay and he's being well rested in bed and like his the Baron kind of toasts and everything. It's just it just feels a little tonally off. So all that withstanding, this film is a solid four and a half out of five. We're going to call that the Frankenstein filibuster. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Wow, James, what you got? Um, what did I give? Uh, what did I give Dracula? I gave it low. Did I give it three? You gave Dracula three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. Oh, Lord. Um. I mean, I, I, I like, I like this movie a lot. And again, I mentioned, you know, when I was. Uh, if I remember correctly, <laughs> when I gave my final review on Dracula, uh, I said, good evening. And then I gave it a three and a half. But I think I said something along the lines of, it's great bones for what's built upon it. Uh, and this, I think, um, this really finishes out the uh, the skeleton of what will become the Universal Monsters. Uh, it's a little rough, uh, for sure. But it's a, it's a great uh, step. One might even say a, a giant platform shoe uh, forward uh, of what will be coming down the plate with uh, especially Bride, but the Mummy, the Invisible Man, um, and eventually the Wolfman. And um, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful looking movie, with the exception of that. Uh, that black uh, tarp that they use as the sky. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, just the um, the monster's birth scene is uh, literally uh, a film classic. The the windmill um, is a gorgeously shot scene. Uh, got, um, I mean, Karloff's, Karloff turned what could be a run-of-the-mill, you know, nothing bit part performance uh, into something something heartbreaking. I think uh, when all is said and done, uh, and you got Colin Clive uh, putting in the work uh, in a movie that is messy. Um, yeah, and and Dwight Fry's as the uh, the truly only evil character in this movie. He's such a menacing uh, little shit as Fritz. Uh, I mean, I'm giving this movie, I'm giving this movie 4.25. Uh, 
four and a quarter. Um, just oh, because, just, like, I can't believe. I, I, I am. I don't give a shit about you guys. <laughs> uh, it's our show. We do what we want. <laughs> I'm going rogue, baby. I'm on the podcast. It's going to be four, four, four stars and then one, um, one hanging Fritz. And Fritz is like a quarter of the size of the creature, so four and a quarter. Um, but I say that I would, I can't give it a 4.5 because I know where the series goes. And it's hard for me to think of this solely as its own thing and not part of a greater story. Uh, so yeah, Garrett, what do you think? This is an important movie, and I get that. This is a very, very important movie for the history of cinema and the history of horror. And I don't like um, where this is going. What's that? I don't like where this is going. You're laying on at, the complimentaries a little too thick. I look at Dracula. I'm gonna make. I'm a huge James Bond fan. Dracula is the Doctor No of the series, right? It's not the best, but it lays the foundation. It creates the bones. This is probably the gold finger of the Universal Monsters. This is the one you think of. This is the one that has all the, the creaky doors and the mad scientists and the hunchback and all the things you think of when you think of a Universal black and white horror movie come from this movie, come from Frankenstein. So it's important. It's culturally important. It's, uh, I was going to say a well-made movie, but I don't want to say that. It's a well-acted movie. It's a competent movie. I... Two stars. No, I'm not going to give it two stars. I'll, I'll throw my star rating what? out now. I'm going to I'm going to give this three and a half stars. I don't think it is as strong as Mike thinks it is. He has the whole script tattooed on his back. It's, again, <laughs> it's not a big tattoo because there's not a lot to this movie. I think this movie could have benefited from a slower pace. Actually, I think it moves far too quickly and leaves the viewer a little confused sometimes about what's going on. Not as much as Dracula when things just happen and you're like, I don't know what's happening here. Um, but Dracula had, had a little bit more atmosphere to it. So not a terrible movie. Um, I, I enjoyed watching it. I understand how important it is. But I was a little let down watching it again for this this retrospective. So three and a half, still, still a really solid movie there. Boys and ghouls, this is the Monster Rally podcast. And one of our co-hosts just said, Frankenstein is not a bat movie hold on hang on in gary's defense he's wrong but <laughs> oh that's in his defense he he also said that i don't want to get political here guys <laughs> but gary said that it's not a bad movie and he's correct about that it's not a bad movie sure yeah right yeah, i wasn't i wasn't wrong <laughs> Wow, we're getting a little we're getting a little feisty here. When we're coming up on our problem is, and I think Gary's just a little too afraid to say it. It's not a horny enough movie for him. That's um, true. Where, where Dracula was all about the edging, not any edging in here. It is. There's only one scene of sexuality in this movie, and wow, that's we know what happens. So I do not like looking at your face when you do. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, there you have it, everybody. That's our discussion about Frankenstein. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks talking about The Mummy, Hell starring yeah. Brendan Fraser. Ah, <laughs> We're jumping we will right get to, to those. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. 
So we'll be back in two weeks talking about The Mummy. You can find us online at Monster Rally Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can even email us uh, if you want. I guess you can send us things at monsterrallypod at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, concerns, you disagree with me and you think Frankenstein is a 5 out of 5 just like Mike. I think Mike said it was a 10 out of 5. He said this is the greatest achievement in human okay. history i said it was a four and a half out of five i don't want to put my foot in my mouth this early on because there are fives coming in this legacy films son yeah, there are. next week who knows? son of frankenstein's neighbor is a five out of five calling it right now but anyway for for mike and james this is gary thank you for listening to the monster rally podcast and until next week wow.